Several years ago, an elderly gentleman and I were talking, and I forget the train of thought that we had going, but I made the statement that Jesus was born of the flesh, and he was appalled. He says, no, Jesus was not born of the flesh. I don't, I don't know what he was, was thinking. I thought, surely he just does not understand what that phrase means, or he's got some other uh, thinking concerning what that phrase means. And so I developed this, this series to help him understand, and of course help others to understand, uh, that Jesus was indeed born of the flesh, and that is the only way he could be both God and man, which he, which he is. And so uh, we're going to look at some scriptures this morning and talk about his deity and his humanity. And clearly this is something that is not completely understandable to us, but I believe we can understand these scriptures well enough to come to appreciate the fact that Jesus is both God and man, and that we must believe that and that we must act on that if we want to be pleasing unto him and go to heaven when we die. In John chapter 1 and beginning with verse 1, by the way, this is the only night I'll be using the New King James Version. I did this particular chart before I started using the ESV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. There are those who teach that Jesus was the first created being. Those people who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, that's interesting too, because they claim Jesus is not Jehovah, and yet they witness <laughs> They, they go out and testify to what Jesus has done for them. And so uh, they call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. They witness, according to their te- uh, terminology, of Jesus. But then they deny that Jesus uh, is, uh, is Jehovah. Uh, some translations, uh, some people say Jehovah. Some translations say Yahweh for the, uh, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. But... Jesus was not created. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And so he could not have been made. He was with God, and he was God. He was with others who had that same nature, eternal nature, that he had. And he shared that with them. There are three persons identified in the Bible as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is referred to here as the Word, as we'll see in the context of this passage as we go to verse 14 of John 1, where the apostle writes, And the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now these two passages alone, John 1, 1 and 2, 1, and 1, 1 through 3, and John 1, 14, is all we really need to show that Jesus is God and man. He was in the beginning with God, he was God, and he was made flesh. And the only way he could possibly have been made flesh is by having been born of flesh. 
And so, but we're going to look at some other passages and help drive this point home and help us to better appreciate this fact so that we can be able to talk to others about this and help others to appreciate this fact as well. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's actually verses 1 through 3 there. But uh, notice that God promised through his prophets concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the word of God was and is the son of God, and he was made flesh, as Paul goes on to say, in verses the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now Jesus gave all manner of evidence of who he was to back up his testimony, to back up his claim while he was on the earth, he performed all manner of miracles, a greater variety of miracles than anybody had previously uh, performed, even more than Moses himself. And, uh, and these were his credentials. And we have noticed, I don't know that I've got it in this chart, Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these things that you do except God uh, is with him. And so a man sent by God claims to be God, claims to be the son of God, and he backs up that claim with the miracles. But the full and final proof is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus predicted long before it occurred, long before it was clear to anybody that it would occur, that he would suffer, die, and be raised the third day. And when this, you know, if, if Jesus wasn't God, he would not have been raised. If he had not been raised, that would have been the final proof. He was not who he claimed to be. But he was fully and finally declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh, so he was born of the flesh, but he was uh, shown to be the, Spirit, the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He wasn't, uh, he didn't become the Word of God by any fleshly birth. He didn't become uh, deity by the fleshly birth or by any kind of birth. He always was deity, but this was proven by the resurrection from the dead. In Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, I mentioned yesterday morning that Genesis 3.15 is the thematic verse of the Bible. That is the thesis sentence of Moses uh, 
in the book in the in the Pentateuch, it's also the thesis sentence of God for the entire Bible that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. The, Jesus became the seed of the woman when he was born of a woman, born under the law, born of a woman, therefore born of flesh. He had a fleshly birth. That is not what brought him into existence. That simply brought him into the, uh, the world of humanity. He became a part of the human race through this physical or fleshly birth. But he already existed prior to uh, the inception in his mother's womb and certainly before, therefore, his birth under the law. But he was sent forth the Son of God, born of woman, born under the law, again to redeem those who are under the law that we, Jews in particular, the Gentiles also, might receive the adoption as sons. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul writes, And you who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now, they had become enemies of God. They weren't born enemies of God. There are those today who teach that as soon as you're born, you're an enemy of God because you are totally hereditarily depraved. You are born in a, with original sin and therefore separated from God. But no, that is not the case. They were alienated and enemies in their mind by wicked works. That's how they became enemies of God. Yet now he has reconciled. Though they were enemies, God had reconciled. The word reconciled means to make friends again. A conciliatory address is, is, is words, an address, uh, something said to somebody where you attempt to make uh, a friend of that person. And this is what God was doing in sending his son to die on the cross. He was reconciling man, bringing man back to him. That was his intent. But this requires the free will of man, and man must comply with God's will. In the body of his flesh, so he, was, uh, he has reconciled in the body of his flesh... He wouldn't have had a body of flesh if he hadn't have experienced a fleshly birth. Born of a woman, born of the flesh, therefore he had a body of flesh, and through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And so notice how redemption, reconciliation, is tied to the physical birth of the Word of God, the Son of God, by a woman who had never lain with a man, a miraculous conception and, and physical birth that brought him into the human race and the nation of Israel in particular. Now, again, this was God's ultimate purpose stated in Genesis 3.15. And therefore, when he says back here, in chapter 4 and verse 4 of Galatians 4, when the fullness of the time had come, when Jesus was born, the time was full. Remember, God told Abraham, when he appeared to Abraham, 
I'm going to give you this land, but you're not going to possess it during your lifetime. Your descendants are going to be servants. But in 400 years, I'm going to bring you back. After 400 years, there was the fullness of time. And God raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. That time was full. But the fullness of time, as far as Genesis 3.15 was concerned, was not until the time for Jesus to be born. A lot of things were involved in the fullness of time. Four kingdoms had to come and go, or four kingdoms had to come. Three of them had to go. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, and the Roman kingdom. And it was during the days of the Roman kings, according to Daniel chapter 2, that God would establish his kingdom. And so when Rome came to power, the people knew that the time was drawing near. The time was nearly full. Joseph, a descendant of David, married Mary, or was betrothed to Mary, another descendant of David. Jesus was descended from David through Mary, not through Joseph. But through Joseph, he had a right to sit on the throne. And so the time was full. God was getting ready. And when Mary gave birth, then Jesus experienced a fleshly birth. The Word of God experienced a fleshly birth. I believe he then became the Son of God and the Son of Man and prepare him for uh, a death by which he would present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul wrote, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. How was God manifested in the flesh? The Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. One member of the Godhead experienced a physical, fleshly birth in order to uh, for God to be manifested in the flesh to accomplish what he set out to accomplish as revealed in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Just manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And so here Paul capsulizes the entire gospel story from the time of the incarnation to the time that Jesus was received up in glory at the ascension. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, the writer, I don't know who it was, some say Paul, I don't know. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Remember we talked yesterday morning about the fact that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And that's what he's talking about here. But in order to do that, he had to be born of the flesh. He had to be born of a woman that he might through death destroy him the devil, Satan, the serpent, who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so again, a physical birth was necessary. 
and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There was a fear of death because there was no hope in death. Oh, they could hope in death in the sense that they would hope that God would one day provide that ultimate sacrifice that would cover their sins if and to the if they were faithful under the covenant that they lived in. But they were still subject, they were still afraid of death. But God took that away when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. There's no reason for us to be afraid of death if we are in Christ Jesus having been reconciled unto God. In 1 John chapter 4, And verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Now, when he's talking about the Spirit of God here, he's talking about prophetic spirits. He's talking about human spirits or the Spirit of God speaking through men. There were all manner of men out there at the time claiming to be speaking the Word of God. Some of them had the Spirit of God in them and some of them didn't. Most of them didn't. So he says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, he's not saying that as long as you believe in the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. At this particular time, the people in Ephesus to whom the letters of John were apparently written There were people who were saying Jesus came in the flesh. And there were others who were saying, no, Jesus did not come in the flesh. Jesus was an apparition. Or if they believed that Jesus came in the flesh, he was not God because God and flesh cannot commingle. You cannot have God coming in the flesh. And so they were preaching two different things. And the people were perplexed. How do we know who to believe? And he says, here's how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit, this is personal spirit, that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, a lot of people talk about the Antichrist. And they all relate it to the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation never says anything about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is not one person. The Antichrist is a type of person. Any person who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God and is Antichrist. And so he says in another place there are many Antichrists. As a matter of fact, it's right here. 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So there's not just one. There were many even at that day. Anybody that did not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh was a deceiver and an antichrist. Back in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, just to refresh your memory about what we looked at yesterday morning. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted the woman to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and ye shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To have your heel bruised is to receive a minor blow. But to have your head bruised is to receive a fatal blow. Satan would deliver a minor blow to Jesus in participating in the bringing about of the crucifixion of Jesus. But God was counting on that. God had already taken that into consideration in his eternal plan. And so Satan, as he tried to engineer this, he was playing into God's hand. So he bruised his heel, but that was according to God's plan. And by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus bruised his head, the serpent's, the serpent's head, who was, and again, the devil. In 1 John 3, verse 8, he who sins is of the devil. He's the devil's offspring, the devil's seed. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. This shows that the serpent in the Garden of Eden is to be identified as the devil. The book of Revelation in two places identifies that old serpent, that dragon, as the devil and Satan. And here John does in 1 John 3, chapter 3 and verse 8. This is the purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is, that he might deliver that fatal blow to Satan that would deliver from bondage all those whom Satan had captivated who would turn to God in faith, confess God, repent of their sins, and submit to water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And by that, they would be delivered from the bondage of sin, and therefore the works of the devil, as far as they were concerned, would be destroyed. He goes on, or Genesis 2, 22 and verse 18. Moses wrote, in your seed, here's God speaking to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God chose Abraham. Abraham showed himself approved of God, demonstrated that God did not make a mistake in choosing Abraham. Abraham obeyed God's voice. And God said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And a lot of people seem to think that's talking about the modern Israel. Now, it's not got a thing to do with modern Israel. Modern Israel was established by proclamation of man. Ancient Israel was established by proclamation of God. Ancient Israel passed away. Modern Israel has nothing to do. There's no continuity there between ancient Israel and modern Israel. And so he's not talking about Israel, the, the modern nation of Israel. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. In chapter 26 and verse 4, he, had, he said, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, 
and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in his seed. Keep that in mind. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul explains this. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to your seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. God was not going to bless the nations through a singular nation. He was going to bless the nations through a singular man, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of God, the, the, and, and, and the son of, of a woman. And this individual would be God. He would be man. And he would deliver a fatal blow to the serpent. Satan, that old dragon, the devil, and deliver many from bondage. But again, if you want to be delivered from the bondage, you're going to have to obey the gospel plan of salvation. And you need to keep that in mind. In Galatians, what Paul is dealing with is these Judaizing teachers, pseudo-Christians, as Paul identifies them, who were trying to influence the Gentiles among the churches of Galatia to submit to physical circumcision and the keeping of the law of Moses. He was, they were trying to make them proselytes to Moses and saying, well, you're not really a Christian acceptable to God unless you become a proselyte. That was wrong. That was adding to the gospel. And so that's primarily Paul's purpose as he goes through here and explains uh, all of these things to help them understand that, no, they do not need physical circumcision. To the, to the Colossians said, you've experienced the only circumcision you need, and that is the circumcision of the flesh, spiritual circumcision, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, which occurs in water baptism. In Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so if we are in Christ, and he has already said, we didn't read it, baptized into Christ, you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when God promised to bless the seed of Abraham and to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, he's talking about not the nation of Israel, but a spiritual people who would accept God's mercy and grace through their faith and obedience by submitting to the gospel plan of salvation. And so Jesus was and is God. Jesus was and is man, though he has gone to heaven. As far as I can tell, he, he maintained or re retained his, his human nature. Although he is elevated to, to heaven, he has ascended back to heaven to prepare a place for us. In Hebrews chapter 6, he talks about how that he went to heaven as a forerunner for us. Just as John the Baptist came on the scene as a forerunner of Jesus, Jesus has gone into heaven as our forerunner. He told the apostles, I go and prepare a place for you that I might receive you unto myself that you might be where I am. And so that's what he did when he went back to heaven. Having 
died on the cross, shed his blood for many for the remission of sins. He was buried in that tomb, was in that tomb for approximately three days. He rose from the dead, spent another 40 days uh, with the apostles, and then he ascended back to heaven. And 10 days after that, he sent the Holy Spirit to, be, to bring to the apostles' remembrance everything Jesus had taught them and to guide them into all truth so they might know and understand and communicate to others. And not only communicate to others, but verify their communication as God's word by the signs that they, that they did. And so we've got the Bible here, and this Bible contains all of this information. Now, yesterday in the second hour, I went through and I talked about Nehemiah chapter 6 and 9 and Daniel chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 11 uh, being repetitions of the, of the story, the history of God's dealings with man. And I meant to include First and Second Chronicles. If you look at First and Second Chronicles, you'll see that that covers the history of God's dealings with man from Adam through the, the return from, from Babylonian captivity to the area of Jerusalem where they began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. Why did God do that? Well, they had been in Babylon, or yeah, they'd been in Babylon for 70 years. Many of these people had been born in Babylon and had never uh, been over there in Jerusalem. And so as they come back, they probably hadn't heard any of this. And so whoever was inspired by God to write it wrote First and Second Chronicles to help these people to remember or learn what God had, had done. And he traces the entire history of the patriarchal age and the Mosaic age up to that point of the return of the children of Israel from bondage to Jerusalem. Some of those events are not strictly in chronological order, but a great many of them are, are there and in chronological order. And as we go through the Bible and we see these repetitions, that helps us to remember, to, to internalize the story of God's dealings with man and how it's all about redeeming man. God knew in eternity past that when he created man, a, a, a being with free will, that that being would violate God's will. And he planned to save that man from his own sin, that being from his own sin. And that plan involved sending one member of the Godhead to be born of the flesh, to live a life of perfection, righteousness, and then to die on the cruel cross and be raised and ascend back to heaven. And then he used that, a figure of that in commanding water baptism. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 and in Galatians chapter 3, baptized into Christ and into his death that we might rise to walk in newness of life. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is figuratively represented in water baptism for their mission of sins. If you need to make your heart right with God as an alien sinner, 
never having done so, or if as a child of God you have gone your own way, returned to sin, and need to repent of that and turn back to God again, we'd encourage you to come while we stand and while we sing.